Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Bidwell Park so charmed Arthur and poet Paul Belt that he and his partner moved to Chico in 2016, and he has now written a book about Bidwell Park. In it, He explores the park's diverse landscape through conversations with knowledgeable friends of the park about its history, geology, ecology, wildlife, and the controversies that have shaped it. Paul Belt says, that's why I'm writing this, to get attention back on the park. The title of his book is Bidwell Park, Personal Reflections and Casual Conversations about Chico's Crown Jewel. Paul Belt, welcome. Thank you. Now, you quote somebody in your book, a lot of people live here because of the park. And I know that's true because some years ago, quite a few years ago, my husband and I were looking to, well, should we move to the south of France? And Chico won out over the south of France. And there were two (laughs) main reasons that we liked Chico. One was a sense of community, and the other was this wonderful park. So I know that it's true that a lot of people come here. That influenced your decision, did it not? Very much. Yeah, it did. We were, um, my partner and I were backpacking at Lassen one weekend or for a few days, and we came down through Chico, and it was extremely hot. And somebody told us, oh, you can go swimming at Sycamore Pool. So that grabbed us right away. And we did some investigations, came back a number of times, and here we are. So you came here in 2016, but you have had a chance to observe something that I, for over three decades, I've lived here, and I've seen Chico grow from this little town to this very populated area. And you talk about that in your book and the decisions that had to be made that affected the park because of this increase in population. Yeah, and that's that's more and more true all the time. And people who really know the park talk about the impacts that the population growth have on it. Well, I was also interested in who you dedicated this book to. And would you tell us who that person was? Wes Dempsey. And a lot of people knew Wes. Wes was a really wonderful biologist who taught at Cal State for a number of years. And he knew a lot about plant genetics. He focused a lot on well, genetics and plant ecology. And he knew the park inside and out. He gave me a whole lot of support and a whole lot of information. And I do quote from him pretty extensively. You do. And the very first picture, well, the first picture is a picture of the park. But you have a photograph of Wes Dempsey. And I met him indirectly because I interviewed his son, Tom Dempsey. Oh, yeah. And I learned to respect Wes Dempsey through his son. Mm-hmm. So you uh, dedicate your book to Wes Dempsey, and I was interested in the things he had to say. You quote him, for example, about blue oaks. About blue oaks? I don't know that I knew there were that many oak trees in the park. And you say that, um, and this is early in your book, that you're quoting Wes Dempsey now, blue oaks grow in cracks in rocks on the hillsides. They're blue because they have wax in their leaves that keeps them from drying out. They can survive in summer in the dry volcanic soil. There's little competition for water or nutrition since the roots are in the cracks. Now, this was probably all new to you, was it? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I think this would be new to the readers in your book. And you know when I thought, oh, a book about Bidwell Park. I've read a lot about Bidwell Park, so what can Paul uh, contribute that I didn't already know? And I discovered a lot. So I think people who live even beyond the area of Chico will want to read this book for all the information that is here that I don't think is found in other places. I'm hoping that's true. Um, part of my reason for re- for writing this, well, again, is to draw attention to the park, because the park has not had nearly enough attention in a lot of years. I mentioned this at several places. There used to be newspaper columns and radio broadcasts and forums and all kinds of things, and all of that seems to have slipped away. So I was asked several years ago to write this book 
when I was doing an article about the park to bring some attention back. So I said, okay. And I very innocently thought I could do it in a year. <laughs> and well, Roger Lederer, who I, I quote quite a bit in here too, I told him I'll do it in a year. And he told me a couple of years later, I thought you were crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is so much research in here. I'm surprised you didn't take much longer than it did to write this book. I could have. There was there are so many things that I just felt would take too much time. And some of it's just too technical for a um, yeah. general audience, like yeah. a lot of things about land use. And that I thought, who, who's really going to want to read that? So I kind of limited what I wrote. But this could be at least three or four times longer than it was. Well, that's one thing I appreciated. For example, the history of the park was very concise mm -hmm. because we all know, I think, about John and Annie Bidwell and how wonderful they were to give this land to Chico. But you're, you were concise about this history, and I thought, hey, good. I want to remember to reference, to look up this history again if I forget about that, what they did. Let me remind listeners that the title of your book is Bidwell Park, Personal Reflections and Casual Conversations About Chico's Crown Jewel. And the author is Paul Belts. And I found so many things interested. For example, uh, there's a freeway that goes along the east side. And when we moved here, we see all these little motels along the what used to be the main way through Chico, downtown Chico. Yeah. And so I wondered about that uh, expressway. So um, how did the freeway get here? The freeway got here basically as... In the post-war years, uh, Chico was growing like a lot of the rest of the country and California. And it used to be that a lot of the traffic going through Chico went along what's well Broadway and Main Street. But people were realizing as the town grew, there needed to be more of a freeway that could carry cars away from that area. And that is exactly where this came from. And as I go into some detail about this, it was a really big controversy about where the free would, freeway would be placed. Yeah. So uh, they, it goes back, you say that Chico's officials had discussed rerouting a freeway and moving traffic from the crowded downtown area since 1949. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, this controversy was going on. And now one of the people that I learned he's a hero and that is Ted Miriam. And he played a wonderful, he played a role in this freeway. But um, I was introduced to this name because our studios now are in downtown Chico. They used to be in the basement of Miriam Library. So I think a lot of people would wonder, well, who is, who is that? Who, who is Miriam? Well, he was the mayor. He spent four terms as the mayor. He was a local businessman, too. And from what I've read about him, he was actually a rather shy, reserved person. And he wound up being pretty much one of the leaders of this community movement to try to decide where the freeway would be. And So he uh, was not—we often think of politicians being gregarious or outgoing. And you quote uh, in, in your book that Ted Merriam was Chico's mayor and— uh, a News and Review article. You had a lot of sources for your information. A news and, Chico News and Review article that appeared after he died, after Ted Miriam died in 2001, described him as quiet, unassuming, and unremarkable. He wasn't a showy speaker. He didn't try to impress. And despite all this, he served as mayor for five terms and was respected for his humility, integrity, and listening skills. It must have been hard for him to confront the division of highways, but he was the agency's adversary for several years. Oh, yes. And I also happened, I'm going to mention, too, when you uh, took this article from the Chico News and Review, it was written by Bob Spear. And so I'm, I'm paying attention to the sources because I happen to know Bob Spear, and he's a wonderful uh, uh, reporter for the Chico News and Review. So... Uh, what was this controversy, that, and did the mayor, did Ted Miriam win, so to speak? No, no, he did not. The controversy was basically about the placement of the freeway. And the state wanted it to follow Sheridan Avenue. 
And they had a lot of reasons for that, mainly engineering reasons. They thought that would be the easiest place to put interchanges. Not because it was cheaper. No, oh. not, no. <laughs> not because of that. They thought that it would just be the most efficient way for the traffic to move through Chico. And a lot of the community disagreed because they felt, well, at that time, Forest Avenue was, believe it or not, one of the part of the out, more outlying parts of Chico. And people thought that if the freeway went there, it would have less of an impact on neighborhoods. And um, it would also not be near one mile recreation area, which is one of Fred, Ted Merriam's big issues. He thought that if the freeway were near one mile, it would um, really cause a lot of bad impacts there. So this went on for years. And the amazing thing is this is the 1950s when you don't really think about this kind of thing going on. Yeah. But it was a huge conflict. It went on for years, all kinds of meetings. There were, in, there were petitions drawn up to try to affect the placement of the, of the um, freeway out by Forest Avenue. And finally, uh, I, I think a lot of people just became weary. Yeah, because that surprised me how long this process took. Oh, yeah. The decision to where to put the freeway took so long. I know, yeah. I could see how people would get bored with the subject. Would say, oh, oh, yeah. Well, the community, eventually, people did start saying, this is really going on too long. We need to move on. So finally it was, of course, placed by Sycamore Avenue. But there's, there's actually consensus among people I've talked to that that's best because if it were placed farther out in a more remote part of the park, it would have more of an impact on wildlife habitat. A little bit more out there. My guest is Paul Belts, and he has put together a book. The title is Bidwell Park, and it consists of personal reflections on Paul's part and casual conversations about Chico's crown jewel. And I was noticing as I read this, I could just picture you talking to some of these people because I know a lot of these people that you consulted. And I know where you didn't name it by name, but Upper Crust. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I was thinking, I probably have seen Paul uh, because he's probably been at Upper Crust sometimes when I was. So I just pictured you sitting there with these various people that I know and asking them about Bidwell Park. So... You uh, you talked to uh, Roger Letterer, oh, yeah. who's an ornithologist. You also talked to Dave Nopal, and I was introduced to that name because he's kind of the second generation of a tremendous source of information about Chico. So who is Dave Nopal? Dave Nopal, well, he's the son of uh, John Nopal, of course, who was both a teacher and he was a local historian. He collected a huge, huge number of photos. And, of course, you can find them at the Merriam Library. I've looked at them quite a bit. And Dave has files and files of information all about the history of, of Chico, a lot about the Bidwells. And, well, of course, he's real connected with the Chico History Museum. And, for example, uh, he's one of the ones you quoted about Ted Merriam yep. was Dave Noble. That's right. So... Um, there, like I say, there are a lot of things that I um, didn't know kind of the chronology of. And there, you, you made a statement that I just found, what? Is that really true? And this is about the Chico Peace Endeavor. It was called that at first. In 1960, the Chico Peace Endeavor, it was called. Later, its name changed to the Peace and Justice Center. And that was in the 1980s. And now, and I thought, well, why have I not heard about the Peace and Justice Center recently? And that's because its name changed again. And you tell us the name is now. Chico Peace Alliance. Chico Peace Alliance. Alliance. That was after COVID. It's yeah. now Chico Peace Alliance. Yeah, the storefront closed during COVID, unfortunately. But they are still active, doing various things. Yeah, because I would look at that when I would ride down Broadway, uh, their center there. But what you said about it, you said... This is the U.S.'s, the United States's oldest ongoing peace vigil. That surprised me. And tell people, because maybe people say, hmm, I'd like to join that. So how would they go about getting involved with the oldest ongoing peace vigil? There is a web page. It would be Chico Peace Alliance. Or you could just go downtown on a Saturday around noon, and you'll see people having a vigil there. Yeah. And just, I'm sure they'd be happy to welcome other people to come. 
Yeah, and people who support it might honk their horn, say, yeah, right on. Oh, yeah, definitely. My guest is Chico author Paul Belts. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Paul Belts, who has written about Bidwell Park. And in the book, he uses personal reflections and casual conversations to tell us about Chico's crown jewel. Speaking of the importance of Bidwell Park, you quote Thad Walker, who happened to be from Asheville, North Carolina, but Thad said, The park is one economic driver in our community. Investing in the park is investing in our community. Understanding the past helps build the future. And it seems to me, Paul, that you are playing a role in helping us understand the past because you say understanding the past helps build the future. And you say... He says, this is Thad Walker you're quoting, investing in the park is investing in our community. And that sense of community is the other attraction for my husband and me when we moved here was the sense of community. And people are so helpful and thoughtful. And he said that investing in the park is investing in our community. So investing in the park? How do people invest in the park, Paul? In a lot of ways. There are... Different ways people can volunteer in the park. I mentioned the PALS network, which is a city. The letter's P-A-L-S. P-A-L-S. Let me think. It's um, partners, <laughs> ambassadors, <laughs> leaders, and stewards. And it's, uh, it's done through the parks department, and people can connect with that. And there are a lot of things you can do. You can do park cleanups, which it really needs. You would be amazed what you find doing cleanups out there. And people, yeah, I was impressed by that, reading your book about how much people have to clean up. Oh, constantly. Yeah, constantly. Yeah. yeah, my partner Kate and I are out there at least a couple, a few times a month, and I won't mention everything that we find. You can probably imagine. So that's one thing you can do. People also working through PALS can work on you know, just being ambassadors, talking to park visitors, letting them know kind of what the rules are or where a certain trailhead is or sharing information with them. And there are people who rem- do things like remove ivy from oaks, which is really important because if the ivy grows too high into the oak's crown, it can block sunlight and block photosynthesis. Because we think about removing trash, I mean, cast away beer bottles or cans and that sort of thing. And I have a friend who, she and her husband take early morning walks, and they they take a plastic bag along with them and toss in very uh, good. Trash. Great. Yeah. Glad to hear it. Well, you um, say Tom Barrett is another one of your sources, and he say the problem is a lack of funding. And we think, well, we had this increase in our local sales tax. Doesn't that help with funding the park, <laughs> Paul? In theory, it will. But from what I've heard, um, in okay, I just have to say this very tentatively. In the um, when that was on the in, on the ballot, so it, there were things in the description that said some of it would go to the park, but there are people who feel more of it will go to things like street repairs and things that are very necessary. 
Yeah, because they think, well, the park, it can wait. It'll be there. We need to take care of these other things that have priority. That's been the attitude forever uh, from a lot of uh, officials that the park is not the priority. So we're hoping to try to make it more of a priority for a lot of reasons. Well, you quote somebody named Lise Smith-Peters, and she says the park doesn't get news coverage. So that kind of thought, ooh, uh, NSPR, we have a lot of reporters and uh, maybe they should know about your book. <laughs> and say, that would be great. That's part of my point. <laughs> and say, well, maybe if we covered the park more seriously, people would realize, oh, my goodness, I want to do something to help out. That and people just, out of, I think, out of ignorance, it's not that people don't care, but I think they just don't know. A lot of people don't know, and they, they really don't know the history. They don't know the problems. And like I say, there have been many, many controversies over this place. And there did used to be regular newspaper columns in the Enterprise Record and in um, News and Review both. Lately, I don't know exactly why, but it seems like there haven't been. I'm hoping we can pick that up again. Well, on a more fun note, (laughs) I think people enjoyed seeing the goats in the park. And... uh, (laughs) Uh, this is about 10 years ago, but there was a problem with the goats in Lower. This is in Lower Park now. We have the goats. And what was the problem? The problem was that the goats were attacked by dogs, and that was a big issue. They, when they come now, they do have guard dogs, and the guard dogs will hang out with the goats. And they're beautiful dogs, but I'm always told, don't try to pet them. They're very protective. So here are these nice goats. And uh, Dave Nopal, that you mentioned earlier, told us who he is, and he says, we ought to have our own herd. That's what he was saying. And um, what did you have an opinion on that? I think it would be great. I think the goats are really wonderful, and they do draw a lot of attention to the park. A lot of people come and see them and wonder what's going on here, and then they can find out about introduced plants and how you have to reduce fuel loads and... Start thinking about things a little bit more. Well, you know, I'm reading along in your book, and I see what Dave Noble's saying. I thought, yeah, those goats are wonderful. But there's an opposite opinion. And Tom Barrett Mm -hmm. said, goats can be useful, but not the way the city is doing it. So what was his complaint about how the city was handling the goats? I think he felt that they were not really getting a lot of the a lot of the introduced plants that they needed to get, that maybe they needed to be there at other times of the year. But it it just goes to point out how many differences of opinion there are. Huge range of it. And I I cover a lot of that on a lot of the issues. You do. And uh, that is food for thought for a lot of us. And um, you also, I mentioned Lise uh, Smith-Peters. She's saying that uh, not all weeds are the same. Because, you know, most of us walk through, no, weeds. Weeds are weeds. But you educate us on that. And uh, she says we should maintain drought-adapted plants in the park. Oh, yeah. And I know we in my neighborhood, we try to use drought-resistant plants in our yards. And so, but I hadn't thought about the fact that, hmm, what about Bidwell Park? It would be great. There needs, uh, there have been several attempts at land, at vegetation management plants, and it's an ongoing thing. Drought-adapted plants would be terrific if we could bring more and more in. One of the problems is there are so many invasives in the park. You have star thistle, you have, um, you have broom, all kinds of things. And we probably may need to come up with a strategy for uh, removing or controlling some of those before we can really start bringing in more drought-adapted plants. That's one reason for the goats. Yeah. But yeah. there are also people, one thought I've heard is people could go out and um, actually start removing star thistle at a certain point. That would be, could be a volunteer thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would be a really good thing. But yeah, droughted, local drought-adapted plants would be wonderful. My guest is author and poet, Paul Belts. You may have heard some of his poetry at the uh, end of Nancy's Bookshelf sometimes. And his book that we're discussing is Bidwell Park, Personal Reflections and Casual Conversations About Chico's Crown Jewel. 
Now, so people have different opinions on the goats. But, you know, there's something that uh, is a problem that didn't used to be really when uh, years ago, 30 years ago, that is a problem now. And there's so many pros and cons to it. And that is the problem that we used to call homelessness. And now we call them instead of homeless, we call them unhoused. So what can be done? Uh, Do you have any opinions yourself or the people you interviewed, like Lee Smith-Peters? Well, my personal opinion is that we need to have sanctioned campgrounds in different areas. And this is talked about a whole lot. There are different groups that are trying to set up sanctioned campgrounds where people could come and stay long term. And maybe there could be, oh, job training and different types of counseling going on in these places. Well, at least uh, Smith-Peters makes the point that homeless, being homeless is not against the law. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and there's so many different opinions. Do we consider families who want to walk their children in the park? Or do we consider the fact that these poor people don't have housing? Uh, there's so many different points of view. And so um, did, did people that you talked to kind of agree with what you just expressed as your feelings about it? People have all kinds of opinions, and this is a huge, huge, huge issue that we decided at a certain point was kind of outside of what we're doing here, and it, it really needs its own book, but that, that's my own personal opinion. Yeah. We, yeah. we really do need, and I think a lot of people would agree with that. It's, it'll be really a great day when this can happen. So you, in fact, in your subtitle of your book, you say personal reflections. So you say that this is some of your own reflections and your conversations, these casual conversations with um, people who are in the know. (laughs) For example, um, Roger Lederer is an ornithologist, and he has written books about the birds and the trees of Bidwell Park, along with his wife, um, Carol Burr. So you have a lot of information uh, about opinions and reflections in the body of your book. But you know what I read with eagerness, I guess is the word, is your appendices. And you put a lot of um, good information in your appendices. For example, that's where this concise history of the park and how it came to belong to the city of Chico. So just briefly, I think a lot of people know this, but just briefly, what is your, uh, your first appendices is the history. So what is that? Oh, the history? Yeah. Oh, do you mean the uh, field the lot? The Bidwells? Oh, the Bidwells? Yeah. Oh, you want, I should say something about the Bidwells. Yeah, just okay, because sure. it, uh, it, it keeps coming up. Well, what did Annie Bidwell, what was her intention about this? What is the purpose? Is the park for a natural preserve? Mm-hmm. Is it for recreation? How do we view this park? So just briefly, what is the history okay. that you give us in this well, first? Well, the issue you just said is one of the really big themes that I try to include here. Annie and John Bidwell both decided at a certain point they wanted to share part of their land with Chico. They were very much taken with a lot of the wildness around here. And they were actually friends of John Muir. Muir used to come up and explore, and they would spend a lot of time together. So they felt that they really wanted to preserve large parts of the land. So John died, of course, in 1900, and Annie, as time went on, because she was 20 years younger, so she, yeah, she was long yeah. as you might expect. Yeah, she yeah. was. She was much younger. She actually came up with a deed which, which granted the land to the city of Chico. And there were several things. She made several statements. One was that the um, land belongs to all, the park belongs to all the people. And the other thing she said is she charged the city with preserving the um, ecology, the stream, the plant life, the, the water, the, and animals. And so people have, over time, have picked up on those two statements, and some have said it is all for recreation, and others have said it is all for, um, it should be primarily a nature preserve. And that's where a lot of the disagreements have come from. Yeah, because that will determine the decisions you make. Yeah, very what much. What is the purpose of this park? Exactly. And so a lot of times people say, well, what was Annie Bidwell's intention and what did she want? What would she have wanted? And it's not, a, it's not an easy question to answer. It is not. And it is not. And both sides will 
will state that this is what Annie would want. Annie would want this particular yeah. project or Annie would want this area completely preserved. It's um, going to be an ongoing dispute as long as the park is there, I would say. My guest is author and poet Paul Belts, and he has put together personal reflections and casual conversations about Chico's Bidwell Park. He refers to it as Chico's crown jewel. And it really is. Uh, and you mentioned in your book, it's not just those of us in Chico, but people come from all around to see this beautiful park. Mm-hmm. And you came here to see this beautiful park. Oh, yeah. And one of the things, ideas that I had with this, we'll see where, where this goes, is if the park were well managed, it could be a model for how a town or a city relates to open space around it. So I'm hoping people from other areas are going to be interested in it for that reason. Well, one thing, I like maps, and I was hoping for maps. And you do in your appendices, there is a, a section on maps. And I thought, oh, but they're black and white. But nowadays with computers, you tell, give us a website. So we, if we want color maps, you tell us where we can find color maps yeah. of the park. Mm-hmm. Another thing that is in your uh, appendices Rules and regulations, because I think, oh, now I'm, I'm very interested in knowing what the rules and regulations are in the park, but then how do you enforce them? For example, there are rules about dogs, there, um, and of course, Annie Bidwell did not want alcohol in the park. She did not. But what about the problem of enforcement of these rules and regulations, Paul? Do you have any thoughts on that? There need to be people who can actually be there telling everyone. There needs to be education, primarily. That's one of the big themes that we came up with. There needs to, people need to be, know a whole lot more about what this place is and why it's so important to preserve it. And the funds, again, are low. There are signs put up all over the park, but um, it's a big question. How much does anybody really pay attention to these? So... People from the PALS network will be out there, and they will be talking to people, but there aren't enough of us. Another thing you include in your appendices are uh, a list of uh, proposed and actual developments. They had a lot of ideas over the history of the park. Oh, yeah. And some of them didn't take place. Some of them did. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of proposals that we look at that and say, good grief, they thought about doing that in the park. Uh, (laughs) I mean, a, a polo field? I mean, (laughs) and that was during the Depression. And who was playing polo during the Depression? People who could afford it. Uh, People who could afford it. The the thing that stuns me the most and stuns a lot of people is there after World War II, there was a proposal for there to be a radar based bombing range. Yes. Can you believe Uh, it? Yeah. Fortunately, it didn't happen. But now we we did mention that uh, Annie Bidwell had a clause. Uh, when she uh, granted this parkland to the city, contained several conditions. Um, and this was called the revisionary clause. And uh, we know about her no alcohol provision. That was standard everywhere. I mean, she didn't want alcohol. I mean, Bidwell got rid of his grapevines and put in um, because of Annie Bidwell's strong feelings about that. So we have to look back and say, well, what would Annie have wanted? I guess, in making their decisions. So are there any um, uh, parting um, information of how we can best uh, take care of the park or uh, let it be for the benefit of the community? Well, people, again, can connect with uh, the PALS network and do some volunteering. And it's a lot of fun. And we have um, yearly picnics. I'm hoping that we're going to start having other events. We have had meetings where we've talked about the park quite a bit, and we get a whole lot of information about the issues. So hopefully that will start up again. COVID took a toll on everything. but And just really stay on top of the funding issues. I think city council and everyone else needs to know that. Because it's not so urgent. There are other things, oh, this is more urgent. The park can wait. That's been the attitude, and I think we need to counter that. And one thing I would love to see, I don't know how realistic this is. In in 2005, the park had a 100th birthday celebration, and it was a really, really big event and a lot of fun music. They 
showed Robin Hood. Of course, Robin Hood was partly fu- filmed on the park. Yes, I think most people know that, so we haven't brought that up. But yeah, that was yeah, true. No. That was a fun section of your book, by the way. Yeah, oh, it, it's a good story, but yeah. But um, I think it would be great if for the maybe 225th or 125th anniversary, there could be another celebration like that. So maybe people can start thinking about that. But we need to get more news attention on the park, maybe letters to the editor, a whole lot more things that have not happened lately. Well, I think your book will be an inspiration for everybody who loves the park and people who didn't know they would love the park, Paul. (laughs) Well, that's the plan. That's the idea. Thank you for all the research you did for this book. Again, my guest has been Paul Belts, and he is an author and poet. The book he has put together is Bidwell Park, Personal Reflections and Casual Conversations about Chico's Crown Jewel. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. After a break, I'll be back with my guest, author Paul Belts. His book is Bidwell Park, Personal Reflections and Casual Conversations about Chico's Crown Jewel. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with Chico author Paul Belts, and he has written a book about Bidwell Park. Paul, one thing that I think people wonder about, they've heard about if they just moved to Chico, and that's Hooker Oak. And what's the story there with this tree, the Hooker Oak tree? The Hooker Oak was a huge oak. People thought at, that it was one large tree that had existed for over a thousand years. It was a favorite of the Bidwells and a very big community draw. A lot of people would, oh, people would be married there. There would be all kinds of community celebrations that would go on. It was a really big symbol of Chico. But what happened, it it experienced some damage in a storm in the 1960s. And finally, in the 1970s, it fell during a windstorm. And there was a whole lot of grief in town about it. There were a procession that lasted for several days. But the interesting thing— So this is kind of surprising, too, that here's a tree, and Uh people feel emotion for this tree. It's really, really quite interesting. I mean, I I talk about a psychologist who asked why people were so taken with this particular tree. He thought that— it was so huge, and they thought so old that um, it was a sign of resilience and a sign of just strength and emotion on spiritual strength. And it just people people knew that the Bidwells had loved it. And well, every city needs a town needs something that's its symbol that really is very special to it. And it was the Hooker Oak. So uh, people thought it was a really old tree. And how did they find out, oh, it's not as old as we thought it was? After it fell, there was a botanist who did a whole lot of study of it and found out that it was actually two trees that had fused together and formed what appeared to be one tree. And they, one apparently was, oh, they were real similar in age, no more than about two or 250 years so old. So instead of over a 1,000 years, <laughs> yeah. only a couple of hundred years, though. I a mean, that's still an years. old tree. It's still it, an old it's tree. Still, but... It's still an old tree, but um, it, was, it was really quite spectacular. Huge, huge tree and very well loved. So what happened to the pieces of this tree? A lot of things. There were a whole lot of proposals. What should be done with the hooker oak? Some people said it should be allowed to 
lie there and decompose. Some people said, well, what we should do is send different sections of it to museums and to places where it could be studied. Some people said that it could be um, used to make things like chairs for Bidwell Mansion, and the gavel for city council is made from the Hooker Oak. There were various other things that were made from it, too. So I think that's an interesting thing that people don't know. The gavel for the city council yeah. is from the Hooker Oak. Oh, yeah. This beloved tree. Yeah, it is made from the Hooker Oak. And the thing that I, well, one thing, it's its strange. It's sort of amusing in a weird way. Some people wanted it to be chopped up into blocks that people could buy, like pet blocks, like pet rocks. So it was just a whole huge range. That was about the time of the pet rock. That yeah. was the time of the yeah. pet rocks. It was a huge number of opinions. What do we do with this tree? <laughs> so a lot of discussion. It's amazing just to think how much debate there was going on about the Hooker Oak. My guest is Paul Belts, and his book is Bidwell Park, Personal Reflections and Casual Conversations About Chico's Crown Jewel. So part of that being a crown jewel was this famous hooker oak tree. Now, there's something uh, we've talked about, some of the plants in the park, the animals like the goats that are brought in. But now there's also feral cats. Oh, yeah. And what's the history behind the cats? A lot of people have released their, when they couldn't take care of their pet cats anymore, they have just released them into the park, sometimes students, but not only students. And a lot of people think, oh, well, just let my kitty cat go live in the woods and it'll be happy. And of course, this is not true at all. And you're all. a cat lover, I might add. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a cat lover. <laughs> I think cats are great. But, they, but this is a huge mistake because they can be attacked by wild animals and they also have a huge impact on on uh, birds and other species. They'll go after lizards, they'll go after salamanders, all kinds of things. So if people see a cat in the park, what should they do? Anything? Uh, the, probably called the Chico Cat Coalition. They've done a whole lot of work trying to, make, trying to capture cat. Well, actually, they don't do the capturing, but they will try to find homes for the cats afterwards. And it was a controversy because there were people who said, let the cats live in the park, and they would want to bring them food. Yes. But that finally ended, fortunately. You do still see cats in the park, but it's no longer legal to leave food for them. So there, it seems like everything we've talked about, you bring up in your book, there are varying opinions, and who is right, and who wins the argument, and on what do we base these opinions? So I think this book that you have written can be helpful in well, how do we decide uh, what to do about this situation with the park? I'm hoping so. And, yeah, again, you are going to have people coming from these two places. Is it a nature preserve? Is it going to be, or is it here primarily for recreation and human use? And that's actually a, a long, long-standing debate in the American environmental community. But So that would guide uh, decisions is it a nature preserve or is it for recreation and uh, for people to, like, should we put a shooting range in the, in the park? Mm-hmm. Should we put a golf course in the park? Yeah. Lots of, lots of controversies over those particular issues. So, uh, and what about the golf course? Because Annie did not want people to have to pay to come to this park. No, uh-uh. But a golf course? Eh, how are you going to support a golf course? The golf course developed shortly after Annie's death. And at the time, people really didn't appreciate the wilder parts of the park, like what we now call Upper Park. Not a lot of people went there. The Bidwells had taken guests there, but not too many other people did. So the feeling was people want to build a golf course. Why not? So there it is. <laughs> So uh, I think, too, that uh, people might want to explore parts of the park now. And what about uh, people going off the trails? That's a, a, that's a really, really big problem because when people go off trails, they are having a big impact on, on the ecosystems. And, well, Thad Walker, who you mentioned, and Chico Vallow do a lot of work around trail. They, they'll remove illegal trails and try to do upkeep on some of the other trails that need to be really maintained. 
And if, so what about we just put a gate and lock the gate so that people won't uh, misuse the trails? They'll jump over it. <laughs> you re- that's why we need to have a lot of education. And if I can state, make just briefly mention one issue that I mentioned, there are people on um, Yahi Trail and Annie Bidwell Trail who are cutting vegetation, and nobody knows who they are. No, whatever they're doing, whatever they're thinking is, they are having a negative impact on the park. So. If any of them are hearing this, please stop. So there again, it goes back to how do we enforce these rules and regulations? Uh, I do happen to know people who are trying to go there in the middle of the night and, and trying to see if they can catch anybody. So far, as far as I know, they haven't succeeded. Hopefully this will stop. So I think people don't realize that they have an impact on, say, a trail if they kind of make their own trail. Yeah. I think people wouldn't, oh, I'm just one person. I'm not going to affect this. But you are helping us to see, yeah, your actions do affect, say, the trails, the park, erosion. Yeah, yeah. If you build your own trail, you can contribute to erosion. You can have soil winding up in the stream, which makes it unhealthy for a lot of fish. So people really need to have, again, education is what we need about what the impacts of people's activities are in the park are and why they need to be thoughtful. And it does need to be more than putting up signs, but everybody knows that. You know, it just occurred to me that maybe teachers listening to you talk, Paul, say, hmm, I think I'll ask that guy to come talk to my elementary school students so that they gain an appreciation of the park and think, oh, I'm going to be a good citizen. I'm going to volunteer to help pick up trash or whatever they might do. So there's an idea for you, Paul. That would be great. <laughs> I, I would I'd love to. My guest is Paul Belts. His book is Bidwell Park, Personal Reflections and Casual Conversations about Chico's Crown Jewel. And next we have a segment we call The Writer's Room, and it features writers from around the North State. Bats in the Classroom. A small, sooty bat beats frantically around the fluorescent 10th grade classroom. Of course, someone gets a tennis racket and it's all over. A chirpy student in the front tells the class about the cedar bat house outside his window, the vent-like entrance and cozy chambers, how bats flutter off at dusk and crawl in each morning. One kid hears his mother's bills push through the tin mail slot. Another smells bread burning in the toaster. Another sees her leathery father climbing through their trailer window into his velvet coffin for the day. The quietest girl in the room thinks of all the gloves she's lost slipping back into the warm pocket of her coat and that poor little mouse-eared bat who couldn't find his way home. Henry Hughes. Ceaseless prayer for Donna Rose. Don't pray for me anymore, said my daughter in the vintage dress a flower behind her ear, cigarette dangling between her fingers, as I hold my hands together, pointing upward. Don't pray for me anymore. I'm a grown woman now. I don't need your prayers. My prayers, all 500 of them, flying in all directions like frantic birds as I hold her in my mind every morning on my way to work. And every time I sit in the place where the two creeks meet or when I am approaching the bed of the next dying patient. Don't pray for me anymore, said my daughter, born of me, my hair, my skin, my eyes, every cell of my body. I will always pray for her. How do I go on? Huddled in a corner with a spike through my gut and the doctor's drugs are all I've had for lunch. So I toss and I turn all while reality burns, staring through the wall as I begin to bawl. It's taking over me and there's nothing I can do, so if there's a God, please let me know soon. I walk a treadmill while the world passes by. Why do I feel dead even though I am alive? I stare into the dark and the dark stares back. There's a demon taunting me with deep eyes of black. He says it won't be long before you can't go on. Why don't you give up now and let it all be done? The only thing I can hear is ringing in my ears, 
while the mind begins to scream, you're a weirdo and a fiend. Now I'm struggling to breathe. I was so naive to think I could do this on my own. So please don't leave me alone. I'm falling through the floor. The devil's banging on the door. My head is feeling numb and there's nowhere left to run. I'm asking everyone what's wrong and what's right. Do I medicate myself all day and all night? Now I'm stuck inside the pit of my own inevitable retreat. And this tiny little pill is what's going to save me. Lord, show yourself. This is taking too long. Please don't let this become my final swan song. Brandon Quinones. Hoover Dam. He emerges from the concrete belly of the dam, that black, humid pit, into blinding sunlight. He removes his hard hat, checks his messages. Thumb dances on keyboard, rapidly entering characters. There is no one to talk to about any of this. The pressure he feels pushing down on him, the futility of pushing back. Deep inside, he feels the ancient turbines turn. He feels the bristling energy, freely shares it with a wife and three children. But there are cracks in his foundation. Perhaps it's inevitable Every dam must fail, because look what it's up against. Water always wins. It just keeps coming, flowing down the canyon, steady and relentless. Many years ago, he built a wall, made it as thick as he could. But anything can be worn down with time. Now he feels it, the dampness seeping in, eroding his foundation. There was a day not long ago when the first chunk crumbled off. Now it's a small hole. Water works that scar, soaking and lapping, licking and stroking, probing with its wet tongue. He presses send, texting himself. Now is the end of the beginning of the end. Rob Davidson. Black is peace as the sky that holds the moon strong as those who built the world, wise as the center of the eye, rich as oil, blood of the earth, nourishing as loam, loyal as a shadow, and eternal as charred, fertile fields from which new life is born. Jerry Mahood. For more information on the writers you've just heard, Go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.